Good morning, Jordan. Morning, Bobby. How you doing? I'm doing great. Today is uh, January 25th, 2021, and we're still here. Uh, nothing crazy, nothing bad other than the swearing-in of Joe Biden happened <laughs> at the inauguration. And so, if you listened to our episode last week, we... We talked about the possibility. We were significantly concerned that there was going to be a massive false flag. Something happens, and, uh, and th- things would w- be wildly different today. And the reason that we felt that way was that the media itself was seeding this idea with the the troops surrounding the Capitol, and there's still a lot of them are still there. Although governors, including our own, have called their National Guard troops who were out in D.C. home because it was such a farce having them out there. But the media was, they had, you had, had 25,000 troops, which was about 15 times more than the actual people attending the inauguration. You had the media talking a lot about domestic white supremacy, domestic terrorism, right. which Joe Biden himself acknowledged in his inauguration speech and said that it was something that they were going to address during his administration. Right. And if they're going to address domestic terrorism, they really need to address the media, the corporate media, because they are the domestic terrorists. That's what, if, if you're hearing anything today, hear that. They've been terrorizing us at least since uh, March of last year. Well, and I was misled by the media over the, over, over the last few weeks Oh, that's especially, weird. Especially <laughs> since January 6th, I was, the media has been telling us that terrorists are not welcome at the Capitol building. But during the inauguration, I saw George Bush, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. All, and Joe Biden. All at the, the Capitol building. And Joe Biden was hey, Let's not forget in that he was as involved in the Barack Obama administration for eight years when they were uh, involved in things like extrajudicial extra drone killings of American citizens without due process in foreign lands. I mean, you brought that up, Bobby, a couple of weeks ago, I think. Right, right. And that, that story, and we, we've linked to that story. Um, it's a remarkable and tragic event that gets that got really no media coverage then and, and hasn't since. And the real tragedy, if you really wanna to, you know, if you really wanna turn that tragedy up to 11, Two weeks later, in a separate uh, incident, that man's kid was killed in a drone attack, a targeted drone attack. They targeted him. He was 16 years old. He was born in the United States, a full-fledged United States citizen. He was a teenager, and he was innocent of any crime. So there were terrorists at the Capitol building on January 20th. Yeah. There's there's two sides to every story. I mean, let's make it clear. Their argument is that these guys were a clear and present danger or an imminent threat to the United States, which I guess you can try to make that argument, but you ought to present some good evidence. And apparently the sun became a clear and present danger 
once his father was killed without due process of law. So he needed to be taken off the map too, two weeks later. But that's, that's the idea is there's, there's this uh, Bush, what we call the Bush doctrine that evolved after 9-11 in 2002, that we changed the definition of imminent threat. And there's a national security memo that I guess I'm going to have to link to now that literally says we need to adapt our concept of eminent threat to the abilities and the objectives of our enemies. Now, if you've taken a concealed carry class in pretty much any state in the union or have considered these ideas, you've been taught what an imminent threat is. And the idea of an imminent threat is that somebody has the ability, the opportunity the ability to hurt you and the opportunity and you are actually in jeopardy. And so this is this is a long-standing legal doctrine in, in English common law. I think it, it evolved out of the Treaty of Westphalia in like the 1400s, this idea that kingdoms and countries needed to stop attacking each other for spurious reasons and they would only do so if they were under imminent threat, which means the army is at your door knocking on the door, surrounding your territory and about to attack, well, then you're justified in, in responding. You don't have to wait till they fire the first shot. And so the same doctrine applies to individuals in um, self-defense situations. And it boils down to you can't start the fight and there must be the danger of physical harm to someone that you can actually physically help or yourself. So, so serious physical harm to yourself or someone else. And then the, the threat must be imminent. And the definition of imminent threat has always been ability, opportunity, and jeopardy. The person has to have the ability and they have to have the opportunity. So here I am sitting with Bobby across the table. He's got the opportunity. Now, does he have the ability? I don't know. You packing? Are you packing heat to our to our podcast this morning? Not today. Not today. But if you were, now I have a knife, so I have, I've got this uh, folding knife. So and he I just have pulled the knife out. He's pulling the knife. Off. I have ability, <laughs> and I have opportunity. I'm in the room. I'm within seven feet, seven steps, twenty one feet, and I have a knife. And do you feel like you're in jeopardy, Bobby? No, that looks like a nice bench made. Is that bench made? This is a K bar. Here, oh, okay. have a look. Uh, anyway, that's a good carry. That's a good everyday carry. It's you can see that one's been uh, hammered repeatedly. I've lost the thumb screw. <laughs> uh, it's it's really nice and no frills. I like it. Anyway, do you feel like you're in jeopardy? No, of course not. And the reason, of course, is that there is no no other evidence that you did say in a text message before you came over that you were upset today. <laughs> well, I'm, I've been feeling kind of angry lately. <laughs> so, so yeah, but I haven't been making threats, uh, making wild accusations. You know, I, I, I'm not standing there with a gun inciting your neighbors to violence. I mean, the, that's, that's the point is you're supposed to have the ability, the opportunity and the jeopardy conditions satisfied in order to respond with force, with deadly force. What we did in 2002 is we took Jeopardy off the table because we, we said we needed to adapt our concept of eminent threat to the abilities and the motives or the goals of our enemies, meaning their stated, their stated uh, ideas. And so uh, essentially 
opportunity and jeopardy sort of just got whitewashed. And now we, we have a situation, and that, that was, of course, the justification for the preemptive Iraq war. And that's what I'm getting at is preemptive war is not moral. It's never been moral. But right. we, made a, we made a moral leap to justify preemptive war after 9-11. After 9-11, the buildings were down. Whether you believe they were an inside job, a controlled demolition or not, which they were, um, <laughs> because as George Stephanopoulos, Stephanopoulos famo- famously said this weekend, facts only have one side. There's two sides to journalism, but facts only have one side. We'll, we'll probably so. <laughs> talk about more about that exchange with Yeah, we got, we're going to have to get, in, we're gonna have, have to get into that. And, it's remarkable. And, and uh, we were supposed to be talking about what we were going to be talking about today, but apparently we're talking about imminent threat because there were terrorists at the inauguration. And the, the, uh, the issue after 9-11 was that there was no imminent threat, and the government and the media went through uh, a series of mental and uh, public relations gymnastics to get the public behind the idea that Iraq was an imminent threat. And they just, they just immediately, by telling us it was bin Laden, they just decided they didn't need permission to call Afghanistan an imminent threat, and they invaded immediately. But then they wanted to uh, take Iraq in the same operation, and so they decided Iraq was an imminent threat, and they had to make the justification for that. And so they changed the definition, and we then went to war with them. Now, here's the problem. Preemptive war is immoral, right? But war when you have an imminent threat is moral. And by definition, surrounding a country with your armies, threatening them through threatening rhetoric, saying you're going to attack, having your neighbors attack, bombing runs, assassinating their uh, high-ranking officials, things like that constitute an imminent threat. So to whom does the United States of America currently pose the largest imminent threat? Bobby, take one guess. Iran. Exactly. We're assassinating their generals. We have, we have surrounded their country with our armies, and we're threatening to attack them. They, if any country in the history of the world has ever had the moral right, the moral um, rationale... To, str- to lash out and strike at someone, it's Iran. They're, literally, they've been boxed in, and there, are, there is a threat, uh, a looming, perhaps well, imminent threat. It's not, there's historical precedents for the United States. Uh, you go back to the, the 1970s, and the, basically the United States sponsored overthrow of their elected leader, and then the installation of the uh, what do they call it now? The Shah? Right. Well, that was the Shah was deposed. Now they call him the Supreme Leader. So. The Ayatollahs. It, right, me. the Ayatollahs. So it's useful. I think it's useful to, as Jordan has, has done, to take something that the government does and apply it to an individual level. Like if if I were to do if I were to behave in the way that the government is behaving, would I be punished or would it be moral? And so in the case of preemptive war, you can apply that to yourself with the, in a situation of self-defense or not. And these concealed carry classes, whether you intend to conceal carry or not, they're really useful because they go through the law of the state you live in, but they also go through situations that you may find yourself in that would justify the use of deadly force. Those situations are extremely narrow. 
if I were to walk over to a neighbor or up to a stranger on the street and shoot him and say that the possibility exists that he would have at some point in time harmed me, that would be an absurd an absurd premise for my defense in a court. And by the way, if you're involved in a shooting, you will be in court. Whether, whether it was justified or not, there will be an investigation, and you will have to defend yourself. You're making a really good point. That is that it is really not just a logical fallacy, but a moral fallacy to believe that the government has any power greater than any one individual. To say just because it's the government, they can, for the greater good, abandon morality and, and perform actions that we would find to be uh, harsh, abusive, evil, you know, crossing the line, but just because they're doing it for the greater good. That is a moral a reprehensible moral fallacy. Well, one thing I like to say, and a lot of people don't like it when I say it, but there is no such thing as the greater good. Who gets to decide? And that's something that maybe we can touch on today or, or even dive deeper into is who gets to decide? We've heard a lot of... Well, the majority gets to decide, Bobby. Well, who's the majority? The majority is the party that rigs the vote the best. Right. Okay, which, by the way, will you just... Will you just admit right now, would you just say the election wasn't stolen? <laughs> would you please just say it? Just say it, Bobby. What if I offered you a more detailed, nuanced answer to that question? No. George, step just, up, step up, step just up, say up, 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 up. Just say it, and, and okay. that, way we can, that way we can know that you have been fully co-opted into our mind prison. Now, okay, so, so set this, what's the context for what we're talking about? I'm sorry. Oh, uh, I think it was on, um, you know, the, 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 press, the, the press has these Sunday morning political shows, right? And a lot of times uh, senators and representatives and yeah. people show up on those. Well, George, I'm, I, I never get his last name right. George Stephanopoulos, who most of you probably have heard of this guy. He's been in the media forever. And guess where he was before he was in the media? He, he was employed by the Bill Clinton administration. And... It reminded me of the revolving door between government and media and, and even government. Right. If you have a hard time with that name, you can just say George Step All Over Us. Okay. <laughs> right. So Rand Paul showed up on George's show over the weekend. And uh, Rand Paul is the son of Ron Paul. He's a Republican senator from Kentucky. And I think through the course of his career, he's done a pretty good job of 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 being outspoken and being a good defender of liberty. I don't think he's as maybe as good as his dad has been. I think Rand takes maybe a little bit more centrist uh, position on certain things. But for the most part, he's been at least someone who is willing to speak out against absurdity and tyranny and is a defender of liberty. Anyway, and this exchange is important, whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, no matter your political leanings, no matter your worldview, this exchange is important to see, to look at for what it is. Yeah, because look, R Rand Paul, whatever he is, he is far more uh, statesmanlike in his behavior than Donald Trump has been, whether you like Donald Trump or not. And I don't think he was treated fairly. You know, he's, he's flamboyant, boisterous, whatever. The media took total advantage of that and turned the last four years into a, a running Jerry Springer episode. 
But uh, Rand Paul is articulate. He's a doctor. He's a longtime senator now. He's a man of honor, I think. He, he, he comports himself like a, like a person of honor. Quick side note on him being a doctor. So he's had some exchanges with Dr. Fauci, and Dr. Fauci has, has arrogantly dismissed Rand Paul's, Dr. Paul's opinions, his statements, especially with regards to like herd immunity. Mm-hmm. Herd immunity, by the way, is back in style. Uh, the Washington Post is running a story right now about uh, the benefits of herd immunity, which the Washington Post just a few months ago ran a story about the myths of herd immunity. So we're seeing a we're seeing the mental and the political gymnastics start to t- to take shape now that there's a new narrative with Joe Biden. Right. When we read when we read that clip from uh, 1984 about how everything changed in the middle of the speech, we're literally witnessing that we could spend the whole episode talking about how uh, not not Joe Biden, but all of the related correlated um, institutions and mechanisms of government are now shifting the narrative. The World Health Organization coming out and promoting the idea that we're we're running our tests through too many cycles uh, the economy's opening back up in New York and California. The, the rhetoric is changing almost 180 degrees. Again. In, the, in anticipating that by the spring, we will have beaten this seasonal illness, which is the second wave of coronavirus. And Joe Biden, President Biden. And it will be Biden's... Uh, said as well, and I don't know if he was off the cuff here, or if this was something that was planned for him to say on a teleprompter, but... He, he bizarrely said that there's nothing we can do to stop this virus, where he just spent the last year in his air quotes campaign uh, lambasting Trump and his inability to stop the virus. Well, of course, anybody with a brain understands you cannot stop a virus. Virus, Viruses do what viruses do. And I don't want to get down too much down this rabbit hole right. of we were talking coronavirus. About, we but, were talking about Stephanopoulos. But so, and and the, the point being is that Rand Paul, Rand Paul has always been willing to get out there in the media and and take the hits, and he's been he's been he's been mischaracterized quite a bit too. So he goes on on George's show, and Stephanopoulos says to him, "Will you admit the election was not stolen?" Which is which is a silly question because it's not something that Rand Paul has really argued. Rand Paul's not been out there on the on the Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood train of, you know, release the Kraken and all of this kind of Kraken. We've had this discussion before. <laughs> Kraken, Kraken. Rand Paul's been a, a lot more measured. And Rand Paul answers the question, and we'll link to this clip. Rand Paul basically says, we need to investigate and find out what happened. If there was fraud and there's good evidence that there was, we need to investigate. We know that these states... Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, changed their rules mid midstream in real time. Right. He basically says there's no disputing the fact that these secretaries of state broke the law. And he, That's undisputed. And he says we need to, and then, and then he's interrupted with the talking points. This is why we're bringing this up. It's not to vindicate Rand Paul or to villainize Stephan, Stephanophilophagus. We're doing it. I said that right. 
You said it right. <laughs> we're doing this because we want to talk about how the media manipulates the public mind. That's what we're talking about. We've, we've brought this up in, in... That's like one of our main themes. That's why we exist. Our raison d'etre <laughs> is to unwind all this. And as I watched this, I immediately... I, I texted the link over to Jordan even before the clip was finished. And I think I said something like, this is textbook linguistic programming. This is perfect mind control because George does not have an original thought. He cannot, he cannot process the information that Rand Paul is saying and formulate a response or a, a follow-up question that is logical. He, he defaults back to the approved, programmed talking points. He starts saying, there's no widespread fraud. There's no widespread fraud. Right. There's the election was not stolen. The Justice Department found that there's no evidence of the election being stolen. Right. The Supreme Court dismissed all of these cases. There was no wide wide when, spread fraud. When when Rand Paul then confronts him with the fact that that's not true. Yes, there is evidence and there are two sides to this story. And by the way, you're a journalist and you ought to be interested in both sides if you were doing your job, you would be investigating both sides. Is essentially what he says. Stephanopoulos's response to that was a devolution of his uh, intellectual capacity. He basically said, that's a lie. That was his only fallback position is, no, those are lies. These are the facts. There's only one side to the facts, and you believe the president's lies, and which is, which is uh, you know, a tough position for Rand Paul at this point, who hasn't been treated as poorly as President Trump in the media to now receive the same treatment because early on in president trump's presidency the media in the press conferences rather than rather than according honor to the office like they did to barack obama repeatedly when the man lied repeatedly from a teleprompter okay there were many many instances of uh misinformation, demonstrably false information coming out of the white house that they could have taken issue with during the uh, Obama administration and during the Bush administration previously, and of course, during the Clinton administration. Let's look at how they treated Bill Clinton with great respect when it became abundantly clear that he had been lying about an extramarital affair, okay, and was able to get away with saying things like, well, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Okay, so right. that the, 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 we have a long history of, according to the president, a great deal of leeway, which they didn't accord to Donald Trump. So anyway, that that whole thing, uh, the, the media circus devolved into a Jerry Springer episode with Trump, and now Rand Paul gets caught up in it, and the man is articulate. The man is really smart, and he fires back at, Aco at Acosta, at uh, Stephanopoulos, and, and re really, if you're an intellectual, if you're a thinking person, you got to look at that and go... He ripped him to shreds. I mean, he told him to do his job and and would not allow him to get away with just saying they were lies. I, I can't remember exactly how Rand put it, but it was like, all you're, all you're doing is accusing us of lying. There's credible evidence that hasn't been heard. Credible right. he, evidence. He goes right at George and says, you fall back to simply calling everybody who disagrees with you liars. And it's very, and, and Stephanopoulos has no defense to that. By the way, so I'm looking this up. I was looking for a transcript and ABC News, who, uh, you know, uh, George works for. This transcript will change by uh, 2022. Uh, ABC News is running a story right now. And the headline is, 
Senator Rand Paul continues making false claims of 2020 election fraud. Nothing Rand Paul said is false. The, the premise of the entire interview is based on something that Rand Paul is not arguing for. Rand Paul is not saying the election is stolen. He's saying the election had problems and we need to figure that out. Uh, he was he was and, incredibly, it, like overly diplomatic. Stephanopoulos and, and, says no election is perfect. <laughs> and he admits And he it. continues, after investigations... Counts and recounts. The Department of Justice, led by William Barr, said there's no widespread evidence. There's yeah, but you're phrase, not doing it mean enough. No he widespread was really angry. evidence of fraud. Can't you just say the words "the election was not stolen"? Again, yeah, he was very angry. <clears throat> and, and by the way, Stephanopoulos started the conversation. This conversation started because the Democrat senator that he wanted to interview was having having uh, audio problems, and he just immediately attacked Rand Paul. He just comes out and says, "What's the start of this? What was the first yeah, he was line?" Supposed to be on there with Klobuchar, and she she was having audio problems. Yeah, so, what was the first thing he asks him? He basically says, "Will you admit this election was not stolen?" I think that was exactly yeah, he, how he, he interrupts started him. It. Rand, Rand Paul Rand Paul starts the so they go to Rand Paul, and Rand Paul says, "The debate over whether or not there was fraud should occur." We never had any presentation in court where we actually looked at the evidence. Most of the cases were thrown out for lack of standing, which is a procedural way of not actually hearing the question. At that point, Stephanopoulos interrupted him, and he says, I have to stop you there. I have to stop you there. Will you not admit that this election was not stolen? You know, that's ABC's website. I don't think that's how it started. We're going to we're gonna have to check it They've out. I've got the video here. Do you want to pause and take yeah, a look at it? it? Okay, so anyway, we just found the the smoking gun here, essentially. Bobby was quoting from an ABC News article, and, which doesn't frame the uh, situation accurately. What happened is on ABC this week, Stephanopoulos was going to interview uh, a a- senator. Amy Klobuchar yeah, and the, Rand Paul on at the same time, sort of point-counterpoint. Right, uh, right, and the, and the issue is they're talking about trying to get the uh, some bipartisan support to get President Biden... <laughs> <laughs> How could we even say that President Biden is behind any of this? The man's an Alzheimer's patient, campaigned from his basement. I mean, he's he's a sock puppet. Imagine your arm up in a sock puppet and uh, some and actuating the mouth of the sock puppet. There's absolutely no way this guy's doing any thinking here. Uh, so anyway, they're talking about the president's agenda, and they can't get Klobuchar, her her mic to work or whatever. So he immediately switches over to to uh, Rand Paul, and he says. Let me ask you a question. A threshold a question. A threshold question. He calls it. Yeah. Will you admit that will you not admit that this election was not stolen? He starts off and he attacks Rand Paul. Whatever Rand Paul thought he was going to talk about, Stephanopoulos just immediately basically says, You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. He says, You are you know, you can come to our side or not. Uh, there's an episode, sorry I'm talking so much here, but there's an episode of Star Trek from the 90s, from Next Generation, I think is super, super applicable here. And this was, um, uh, many of you guys, I hope you I hope you remember Star Trek The Next Generation. It was great. It was the first reboot of the Star Trek series after the, after the one in the 60s uh, with... Um, Captain Picard. What's that guy's name? Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart, yeah. Well, anyway, 
in one of the episodes, he gets captured by the Cardassians. In this case, America's been captured by the Kardashians. <laughs> right. But in, in, the, in Star Trek, there's this race called the Cardassians, and they're sort of a lizard-like race with uh, big necks and, and uh, strange features on their faces. They look hu- like humans, but they look reptilian at the same time. Anyway, he's c- captured by the Cardassians, and one of their uh, main generals, an interrogator, I can't remember exactly who it is, has him held captive in this office. And um, he's trying to break him mentally. He's trying to break Captain Picard down. And so the, the idea is that he tortures Captain Picard and then asks him one question that he wants him to come to, uh, he, he wants him to agree with him on only one point, And that is, how many lights do you see overhead? Now, we all know because we're, we're looking at it for, as bystanders watching the, the show that there are only four lights, but he wants Captain Picard to say there are five lights. And if he will say, if he will just say there are five lights, he's going to stop torturing. He has, he has like a, a pain implant in his neck or something with a remote control, and he's going to torture Picard until he is willing to say there are five lights. And right at the end, uh, the way the episode ends, spoiler alert, uh, the way the episode ends is that uh, this man, this uh, captain or general or whatever, comes in and he starts to, to, to reason with Picard. He's like, look, I don't want to, you know, he, he comes in, he catches Picard trying to smash the remote control for the pain thing. And he's like, look, I, you know, I've got many more of those remote controls. I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, I, I don't want to continue to torture you, but you should be aware we've just invaded this planet that we were trying to get information you from from you about and so therefore we don't even need you anymore and your your ship the enterprise has been destroyed and it's floating out in space and so all of your people think you're dead but you know i've just got one one final question and uh if you'll just if you'll just answer this for me you know you can have a good life here in uh here in cardassia because you know you're going to be our prisoner forever and, you know, we'll have women, we can have intellectual, intellectually stimulating debates. I would love to, you have such a keen intellect. I'd love to debate with you. And he just goes on and on. And, and he's like, you know, so, so uh, things aren't looking good for you. But if you'll just agree with me, I will, um, I'll, I'll let you have all these good things. Otherwise, you're going to go rot in prison and, and torture for the rest of your life. And he's like, okay. What's the question? He says, well, how many lights do you see? And Picard sits there and he looks for a minute. And then he is saved because some other Cardassians come in and they let slip that the Enterprise is waiting in orbit to take him home. And none of the, none of the stuff this other guy says uh, ever occurred. But he, um, he then stands up defiantly and yells at him, there are four lights, you know? That has to be a deliberate... Uh, hat tip to mind control 1984 when winston is being tortured and the torturer who who is someone that previously in the story befriends winston and and tricks him and but he says two plus two is what four winston keeps saying four and of course he's forced to say five in order to stop the beatings and and it's his it's his way of admitting and or submitting submitting to them to the power structure to the state 
And he's given a little rep reprise. We've talked about that word before. It's a reprieve. Reprieve, right? <laughs> I can I always get those two mixed up. Before he's eventually snatched up by the state and and yeah. killed. But it, that that the fact that the four lights in the five that has to be a deliberate is he actually killed? Doesn't it end with he says I love Big Brother? I, I don't yeah, think I he's think actually he, killed. I thought they I thought they they threatened to, to have a, a rat eat out his brains. I thought they put a bullet in him at the end. I guess I got to go check that. It's been a while since I read it. But, but the thing is, you're, I think you're absolutely right. It's got to be a hat tip because you have the four, four or five well, it's a very, motif. But the way you describe it, and I don't remember if I've seen that episode or not. Well, we're going to link to it so you can check it out a, on our website. Our website, by the way, mindvirus.show. Bobby, if you feel so inclined, you can go check it out there. Yeah, mindvirus.show. We're also on, on Twitter. You can find us there. We, uh, you can find our podcast. Uh, Spotify. It, it should show up on any of your favorite podcast. Um, We've got a link to the Spotify feed on the website. But, it, but if you like to use Outcast or Stitcher or something, the feed should be showing up there. So any, any of these apps that you use, that these aggregators, we should be there. Right. We've also got a link to the uh, podcast front and center, the RSS feed front and center on our website. So we've, we've uh, highlighted the Spotify one, but right next to it is our standard RSS. You can plug that into any of your podcast readers and it should come up um, if you're not easily finding it through their searches. But getting back to this interview with Rand Paul, it's an, it's so George Stephanopoulos immediately sets forth a false dichotomy for Senator Paul. He says, well, he wants him to take one side of the false dichotomy. Right. And Senator Paul's response is interesting in the fact that he doesn't take the bait. Instead, he offers a pretty measured response. And it's a response that Quite honestly, everybody should be interested in finding out if the election was not stolen. That's the wrong word. The word we're looking for here is is manipulated, is fraud. Was there cheating? And what? how deep did it go? If there's not, and, and Senator Paul even brings this up, if we do a proper investigation and the courts hear the evidence and we find that there is no then fraud. we can put it to rest. Then we can put it to rest and move on. If there was fraud, it doesn't mean that Trump's going to be brought back and put back in the White House. That's it means done. We can, it means we can address the problems. It means and we fix can the address problems. the problem. It I means mean, people who are responsible can be held accountable. That's a big deal right now is that there is no accountability for wrongdoing among certain political and financial classes. Right. And, and it's all being brushed under the rug by people like Stephanopoulos. And so, so this, is, this is really significant. The way that Rand Paul handled it was really important because he, he totally sidesteps the no, you're a liar, no, you're a liar, no, you're a liar type of an argument that they want to start because 75 million Americans probably do think the election was stolen. But what can they do? Rand Paul is literally doing the absolute best he can, working within the system, trying to solve the problem. And Stephanopoulos is saying there's nothing to see here we we own we own you now how many lights are there stephanopoulos how many lights what's interesting about the star trek episode is that uh picard gets away and he does yell at the guy there are four lights and he gets out but at the end he's discussing with the the ship's doctor beverly crusher right i believe is who he's talking to it's been a long time star trek fans please comment straighten us out on our uh on our website on this uh episode page well after right at the end at the wrap-up he says you know 
it was so hard. They're talking about the torture, and he's like, I, I don't know at the end whether I really saw four lights or maybe I actually saw five lights. That's the problem with mind control is you begin to believe the lies. And a lot of people, when we talk about conspiracy, when we talk about these secret combinations, this criminal syndicate that is attempting to control our minds, a lot of people think of this very structured and um, clear apparatus behind the scenes that is that is pulling all the levers and and they think well oh if that existed then somehow somebody would pull back the curtain and we would see it and it would be obvious and because you can't keep something like that hidden so long and that that's the problem is it's not that clear and cut uh dried uh it's it's not that clear cut and um cut and dried is what i'm looking for (laughs) The, the problem is that these people that are involved in the deception believe their own lies. And when you believe your own lies, then it just, it, you're a hop skipping away from total another, destruction and there's chaos. There's another example that I, I came across just this morning. Um, there was a little back and forth on Twitter, as there often is. Uh, and uh, someone, called, someone named Jim Skiuta, Shuta? Jim, he he works at CNN. The argument here is has to do with COVID and the vaccine, and somebody points out that that CNN has mischaracterized things, just putting it mildly. <laughs> and this this guy Jim, I don't know how to say his last name. I don't. I've never heard of him. S C I U T T O. Jim Skiuto. Anyway, he says. I disagree. We, meaning CNN, we've stuck to the facts, the data, and the doctors throughout the pandemic. The disinformation and panic has, in my experience, come from other media sources. He believes the, his own propaganda. He believes, he believes that he is on the side of truth and righteousness, and that is one of the major problems that we're up against in the United States today and really throughout the world, is that the people— using the mind control, the people using the disinformation, the misinformation, and the outright lies believe they are on the side of goodness and believe that regular people, first of all, aren't smart enough to understand truth and facts, as Fauci has said himself, as uh, I think it was a California Public Health Department admitted recently that they, they don't publish the COVID-19 data because the people aren't smart enough to understand it. So, and then Stephanopoulos, in his example, in his mind, he is so far gone. He is so controlled, and he is, has a background in just partisan politics. He's incapable. I believe he's mentally incapable of processing the words that Rand Paul says to him and actually coming up with a counter-argument or a, or a logical follow-up question. You know, if Rand Paul says there's evidence of fraud and we should investigate it, maybe a logical follow-up question would be, how should we investigate it? Or what evidence do you have? Right. The thing is, they, they have wholesale, across the board, the, the main media outlets, the, co- the corporate company media outlets have ignored every single bit of evidence. And they, they, there's a line there that they're unwilling to cross. They will not air any of it. And there is a copious amount of it. There have been hearings uh, before state legislatures that were stymied procedural, procedurally. 
And of course, uh, evidence was filed with the courts that was tossed out on, on procedural basis, you know, uh, lack of standing, whatever. At every turn, they, they, they were blocked and to the point where no evidence was actually heard in an official format. But what we've seen, and I'd like to make a movie recommendation, what we've seen here is a total abandonment of, uh, and, and a lot of people are talking about this, so we're not the first ones to say this, but journalists are not journalists anymore. They've abandoned the not idea of what, what journalism once was. And there's a really great movie, uh, it's on Netflix right now, uh, called Spotlight. And it's about the Boston Globe in uh, 2001 when they exposed the Catholic priest abuse scandal. That is real journalism. I mean, that was a story that the people in Boston didn't really want to hear. And they went, the, the movie's great because it shows these journalists asking the hard questions and digging deeper to find out what the intelligentsia, what the aristocracy did not want broadcast about their community. And then it, of course, went a lot higher and exposed a, a, a significant problem throughout the, the worldwide Catholic Church. But the, the point is, it, it, it describes these Watergate-style journalists who are willing to go against the establishment and publish information that is not helpful to there's, them. There's the old journalistic uh, kind of couplet or adage that journalists speak truth to power. Nowadays... Journalists speak for power. Nowadays, yeah, they use power to stymie truth. Yeah, they've completely inverted their purpose. Right, and there, there was, there was a. This movie's good because it kind of shows how these guys had to. Uh, they they weren't making a lot of friends by, you know, they were they were potentially limiting their future opportunities by speaking truth. Uh, there's a another movie I haven't seen that I want to watch. Uh, about Gary Webb, who broke the Iran-Contra stuff, or, or was one of the, I don't think he broke it, but he he was one of the main reporters that made a lot of the connections, and they drove him to suicide, but it's called Kill the Messenger. And literally, we used to have journalists in this country, we used to have people, and, and, and granted, there there's definitely been um, a control mechanism over the top of these media companies because they have been owned by the oligarchy for a long time, but there's definitely been the ability for truth to come out in certain ways and in certain places and at certain times. The, and this can bring us back to the inauguration, the inauguration itself, the event. So I, I watched it. I had suffered through the entire thing and you can send me a thank you note on our thank website you, because I did it. So it you didn't, I didn't have want to, to. <laughs> but as I watched it, there's so much pomp and circumstance, right? And this particular one had a strange dystopian air hanging over it because there was no crowd. There were no crowd whatsoever. The there's only people, just officials. The only people there were government officials, and of course, they were all surrounded by twenty-five thousand bored National Guard troops who didn't quite understand why they were there. With no ammo, did they have ammo? Hard I, to say. We saw a photo where a guy's shouldering his rifle, but there's no magazine 
There were a lot of pictures of the no mag in the rifle. A lot of pictures with the no magazines, but I thought I saw a few photos where they actually had magazines in their chest rigs. Yeah, but, and and we wondered. Jordan and I were texting back and forth about this, and it might have just been a protocol that where there was no imminent threat. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no imminent. Wait, did you just say there was no imminent threat? Well, there was no imminent what threat. And there? so maybe they just have their <laughs> ammo on their hip or their chest. It's an admission that there is no imminent threat. That's exactly, exactly. what it is. Exactly. And it, it's it was it was all a, a a big charade. Charade to make I you could you could say it was done to one amplify this idea that there is a a white supremacy uh domestic terrorism threat in the United States. You could also say that it was, since we know no one really is excited about Joe Biden, no one's going to show up on a cold day, even though we just had 500 plus thousand show up for Trump on a cold day. So in order to make sure we don't have embarrassing photos of a small crowd, we will have dystopian photos of no crowd and a small group of officials surrounded by I hadn't thought of that. Troops. I hadn't thought of that. that. That's a good point. So yeah, I, ha- I hadn't thought of that idea. That that could totally have been part of the rationale because number one, the Democrats are staying home because they're afraid of COVID. And number two, there's no enthusiasm surrounding Joe Biden anyway. So they would have probably fielded three or four people, which might've been homeless people walking around DC. So I, wa- so I watched this event and if, you, if you've ever doubted that government is our national religion, go back and watch Go back and watch the inauguration. The way that the media talked about the former presidents and the way that they were treated as they were paraded down the stairs and some, some former you know, Bush or Clinton official, uh, Ari Fleischer comes to mind. He was brought on by Fox News to, to just sing the praises of his former boss and also the government apparatus, the peaceful transition of power that these people love to to talk about as if as if it somehow makes us special that we don't just kill each other and and, and install new dictators but the peaceful pan, the peaceful transition of power is something that happens all over the world and we just never talk about it but further and, and more importantly in just this idea that these people that they're showing on the screen and we already talked about how there were literal war criminals being praised. It's this idea, this idea that they are our betters and that they deserve to rule and reign over us and that we are lucky just to sit at their feet and sing their praises. It's absurd. And, and, it's and they offensive. hold us in contempt, right? I mean, especially people like Hillary Clinton. I mean, the, the contempt on her face is... Uh, difficult to mask. She wore a mask and you could still see the contempt. <laughs> and so you have this state apparatus, these rulers. We like to think in the United States that we don't have a royal class. We absolutely do. And we treat them the same way that the British treats their royal class with awe and reverence. And we cannot, we in this day and age, we cannot... We, we are not allowed to criticize them. That goes back to Rand Paul saying that there's some problems. Because if George Stephanopoulos admits that there, were, there was fraud, or he, if he or admits even that there's the possibility, fraud, and he kind of does, he says, well, no election is perfect. 
if he admits that, then he admits that his own people and that his own class and that he himself has helped facilitate and participate in that fraud. One of the important themes that we've talked about is this media programming. And something that kind of piggybacks on that, and that's coming up a lot recently, even in our local politics, our our newly elected governor and his inaugural speech, and Joe Biden's inaugural speech, is this idea that there is this widespread plague of misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories, lies, and we have to root that out. If we go back to the We've alluded to the Sinclair Media, Sinclair Media talking point where all these news anchors were saying the same things, and they all end with, and it's it's a you know it's a danger to our democracy. Mm-hmm. The premise for that is fake news, and their whole premise, their whole idea is that all this fake news is a danger to democracy. So what we're seeing across what we're seeing across the political landscape and the media landscape is this idea that we need to root out and silence fake news or disinformation. They don't like to use that term fake news, I don't think, because that's something that kind of Trump pinned on them. Pinned on them, and also he kind of made that his own. So now they're using the term misinformation. And they're using that to justify censorship and silencing. Twitter, we've talked a little bit about Twitter doing this in the past. They've, they've upped the... They've upped the their own rhetoric. So before the election or just after the election, you know, we saw this a lot with President Trump. They would flag tweet that said this tweet about election fraud is disputed. Well, now they've taken that to the next level and saying this tweet about election fraud is being disputed. And now nobody can reply or retweet it to because of the threat of imminent violence. Right. To clarify or to dispute or to... There's no discussion on it. So they take something that they decide is controversial or disputable and then eliminate the the ability for people to clarify or dispute or discuss, which mm-hmm. is which is the heart of democracy. It's argument. It's conversation. Right. And they want to regulate this stuff on a federal level. I, like we talked about last time, this is a little bit of a don't throw me in the briar patch episode. These big tech giants are itching to have the government clamp down on free speech and to, but, to become the, the, the arbiters they, for the yeah, government. They don't necessarily want the government to do it. They want the government to give them permission to do it under the guise well, of... I think they'd be happy to have uh, government regulation. Right, as long as... It, as it, long as they get to be the ones that do it. Exactly, exactly. The, see, I've got a, I emailed myself for this episode a few links, and one of the things I wanted to talk about was the liberal lexicon, how they changed the language. And you were just you were just going through that. You were mentioning that now instead of fake news, uh, they call it misinformation or disinformation. Right? They're they're trying to label anyone that disagrees with them as a misinformation agent. And I want to link to uh, and discuss some of these articles that you may have seen in the past where people put up a liberal lexicon. A little, a few dictionary entries on on certain words and what they mean to liberals, and I clicked on one, uh, an article titled "The Quote Liberal Lexicon," and <laughs> Gmail says suspicious link. This link leads to an untrusted site. Are you sure you want to proceed to this website? And so I have to 
go through a warning that that this I may be receiving the wrong um, information for my mind here. And Twitter does the same thing. Yeah, and this is this is what it has on it. It has a few. We're going to post a link to this uh, really innocuous some guy's website, just some regular dude's website from uh, last year. And he's got a few memes on there. You know, he's got Bill Clinton's picture and a quote from Bill Clinton that says, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. And then he says, feel free to use my liberal lexicon to aid you in your understanding of our deceptive and deceitful opposition. And it starts off with African-Americans. Fools, we assume, will vote for us no matter what. Anonymous source. I just made this up. (laughs) Bipartisan. When there are... When there are enough stupid Republicans to go along with the Democrats on an issue or a law, you know, so it just goes on and on and on about, you know, democracy, socialism, election, an opportunity to hijack more governmental power. I mean, this this is uh, a little bit uh, facetious in its language, but it, it illustrates the point. Like, um, I want to bring up the fact that anytime you see a story about guns or or some somebody that uh, had guns that was uh, taken into custody police custody what they'll do is they'll take all the guns they had and they'll lay them out on the ground and they'll call them an arsenal or a stockpile and they'll give take a picture of them there's a picture uh from ruby ridge back in the day when the feds um illegally and immorally killed randy weaver uh, people in Randy Weaver's family, his wife, over, yeah, his son, over uh, purported violations of uh, firearm laws. They finally got him to surrender, and then they took pictures of their. It was kind of like a trophy. It's like hunters when they take a picture of their their downed elk or something. They they lay out all the guns, and that's their trophy picture. They've got the the federal officers there walking around and demonstrating what they have have just uh, obtained. It's basically their way of saying. We know he killed his unarmed wife, but look at what he had in his house. Yeah, and he had like three shotguns and three, um, three what we call ranch rifles. These are Ruger uh, Mini 14s which, and a which, couple of scoped rifles, which is a small gun collection. Well, and especially also for a guy it makes up in sense. Idaho. He lives in the mountains of Idaho, right? And there were eight people living with him, so you know. But it doesn't matter. That's a tiny gun collection. I know guys around here. I won't name any names. I lost all of my firearms in a strange boating accident. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I know of gun collections in the hundreds. And so if they ever get a hold of that, man, oh, this guy has an arsenal. He's been stockpiling arms. He was, he was a powder keg waiting to go off. It's like, no, 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 that's, that's America. That's the ethos of America. Tr- that's traditional America. <laughs> Men in America like to buy guns because we can and because it's right. It's just the the right to defend yourself is moral. Well, and there's also this this uh, this very popular hobby that people have called target shooting. Yeah, but this isn't about they hobbies. What? Right, but they don't even want to admit that. They don't want to admit that there's hunting and skeet shooting and target shooting that millions of people engage in every day. Well, yeah. safely, I might add. Yeah, but I think that they, I think they're happy to give you hunting rifles because they'll they'll take those away later. If we can get, if we can move it away from uh, what they call assault weapons, and there's a, there's another graphic we're going to put up there. How every time. Not every time, but quite often in media, when there's a gun involved, the media will call it an AK-47, right. and uh, they they miscategorize <laughs> what these guns either a Glock or an AK-47 or an M16 or an AR-15, whatever they want to demonize, 
that day. They, they, they call all uh, guns that. Another term that is often used is assault style. Re, uh, well, they're just flat out calling assault weapons. And, and what's, what's kind of funny is an AR-15, for example, is a pretty low-powered rifle. Uh, it's, it's efficient. It's a small caliber it, rifle. Small caliber is what I mean. And the reason for that is because without a lot of recoil, you can shoot more accurately, more quickly. So it's an efficient rifle, but it, it looks it looks scary because yeah. it's black. Well, if you if you understand the mechanics of firearms, the AR-15 is an amazing rifle. It, the the Stoner Eugene Stoner designed this uh, gas blowback system, and it has very little recoil for the size of uh, for the amount of powder behind that uh, 22 caliber bullet. And you can shoot them all day long. I mean, they're loud, but they they are so comfortable to shoot. They're so ergonomic. They're like the ultimate in comfort. I mean, if you, you know, if you're if you're talking about an old thirty out six, which is a higher powered rifle, compared to uh, shooting an AR fifteen, you know, it's like driving a, a World War II era Dodge Power Wagon versus your neighbor's uh, uh, Ford. Um, Raptor, you know, one of those really cool trucks. And so, so there's uh, <laughs> this idea that it's a really good weapon. It's, a, it's an incredibly good firearm. And a lot of people have differing opinions on it, but for what it is, it's great. And if you try to outlaw that, it's like, it's absurd. It's absurd that we would, we as a people would say, well, this rifle over here that's made of wood and is used for hunting is appropriate. But this other rifle over here that clearly gives the idea off that don't mess with me, government, <laughs> but, but shoots a lower-powered cartridge and is more comfortable to shoot, that should be outlawed. That, that's, that's an incredible breakdown of ration, of, of, of reason, of rationality. The words, the, the definitions of the words used in... The, the way the media is using these words, it's destroying our language. Because, for example, bipartisan means agreeing with the statists, agreeing with the Democrats or the left or the, or the rhino Republicans, whatever you want to call them, the people that are interested in, in increasing the power of the state. And so uh, I think we're seeing that in the rhetoric now. It's like, you, if you don't agree with me, you're crazy. And you're you're an extremist, and you're dangerous, and you're you're a dangerous extremist. And Rand as Paul. we as we talked about earlier in this episode, the precedent is set for the government to preemptively eliminate anybody that they decide is a dangerous terrorist. They can just use that word now, where it doesn't even belong. Right. That was the whole point of the nine eleven post nine eleven setup. We we've, we've been carefully penned in, carefully trapped into this situation. And speaking of the Paul family, Ron Paul, during those years, was one of the only voices saying, this is dangerous, not because it's just immoral, but also if we really think that the government can't just turn around and use these same powers that they're claiming on us, then we're crazy. You know, uh, Ron, Paul, Ron Paul pointed out when Trump was running, you know, Trump ran in 16 kind of on this idea of the wall, right? The wall and at the border with Mexico. And Ron Paul said, if we can build a wall that will keep people out, it can also be used to keep people in. And his point was that freedom of movement and our ability to 
to go to somewhere where there is more freedom or more liberty. Mexico? Is an important, not necessarily, he wasn't necessarily meaning. <laughs> I know, I, but that's but, what it's starting to look Mexico like. Mexico might actually. and the, the president of Mexico has been on record uh, lamenting the, the Twitter inquisition lately against, right. uh, against Donald Trump. He's like, that, that could happen in my country. But, but the, the, Ron Paul's point was that government power is not ever limited to only the people that we all agree should be subject to it. And we're seeing this with the Twitter inquisition. Twitter is now banning Antifa accounts and BLM accounts. And people are scratching their heads going, wait, what? What? We're on your side, Twitter. And it's like, do you really think, do you really think that when a man gains a little power and authority that he won't exercise unrighteous (laughs) dominion? Well, and let's not forget that we're not seeing this in the news. So the scope of it is understated. But Antifa is out burning down cities again. After the Biden election. Back out in Portland. Yeah, and, and nobody's talking about it. No, nas- no national press, no local press. They've, they've deliberately vandalized the uh, Democrat offices in Portland. They're deliberately targeting Democrats. Right. Because, as we've pointed out, these are professional agitators. They are out there to cause chaos and panic. Which will promote more fascism. Exactly. Yeah. But te- okay, so getting back to this um this bastardization of the language where the words don't mean what they should mean and they they tell you what they mean. You know, it's it's a lie. If you if you talk about election fraud, that's a lie. That's what a lie means now. A lie means something that George Stephanopoulos doesn't agree with. So, right. I mean, did you see you you watched the inauguration? Are we seeing that type of um mental bullying occurring in the rhetoric from the, you know, the, the, the speech from the speech. I mean, of course, Biden didn't write it, but because it, it's, it's right. coordinated. This is all coordinated. The, the, it, th- this would be absurd. The way that the, the reason we're bringing this up is because, you know, 20 years ago, for example, when the spotlight guys at the Boston Globe were exposing the Catholic priests, the public mind hadn't been so severely damaged, but it looks, it appears now, and we've got to do a whole episode on social media, because it appears now that the public mind has been adequately damaged, that they can pull this off wholesale, writ large. And my question is, I mean, is Biden's speech similar to Stephanopoulos's language of simply, Rand Paul, you're a liar? Of course. And of course, it's a lot more flowery, right? And a lot of people... In the immediately after the speech, we're saying, "Oh, that was wonderful. That was so. That was so good. It was exactly what we needed." No, it was, it was, it was full of subtle ways of saying, "Agree with us, or else." If you're so, not with us, you're with the terrorists. We've heard this before. So I'm going to read. Either, I'm going to read a couple with us, of. You're either with us, or you're with the terrorists. Exactly. So this is uh, this is from the speech. Joe Biden's inauguration speech. The will of the people has been heard and the will of the people has been heeded. Okay, that's one sentence. And right now there's a lot there's a lot there to to dispute because the will of the people wasn't heard. In fact, the will of the people was suppressed and couched as election fraud and lies. And let's millions of people have been censored. It's it's like, uh, you know, when the Death Star blows up the planet Alderaan and Obi-Wan says that's. 
I, I, I sensed a disturbance in the force, as if a mil- millions of voices cried out at once and were silenced. I mean, like literally, we just went through that episode of the censorship right. and the silencing. And we're still going through it. And the will of the people has been heeded. No, no, there's a lot of people who would like to see, Rand Paul among them, who would like to see uh, investigation of election fraud. Right, so if I were to write to that take speech, place. if I were to write the first lines, I would say, my fellow Americans, we are now consolidating our power. The narrative has been solidified. Exactly. I will now tell you what to believe. He goes on, Biden goes on. We have learned again that democracy is precious. Democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. So when he wins, it's the... It's the that's when democracy, that's democracy prevails. The success of Do democracy. Do we know who wrote this speech? Who, who wrote it? I'll, uh, I'll look it up. You keep talking it about it. So then he goes on, and this goes on with my idea that, that, that the government is our national religion. He says... So now, on this hallowed ground, where just days ago violence sought to shake this capital's very foundation, we come together as one nation, under God, indivisible, to carry out the peaceful transfer of power as we have for more than two centuries. Okay, first of all, violence did not shake the capital's very foundation. (laughs) There was, what, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of damage? Vandalism? In one gunshot. By the Capitol Police. This idea that the Capitol is hallowed ground is silly. It is a literal den of thieves. It is a den of thieves and conspiring men whose only purpose, whose only, whose only reason for existing is to oppress and to steal and to harm the very people that make their life possible. If any time, if any time that... that Never before has that been more obvious than over the last year with the COVID response and the way that the political class and the kind of financial ruling class has profited while the regular American has suffered through lockdowns and business closures and a psychological beating unprecedented in in modern history. And yet they have the audacity to say that this is hallowed ground where we argue about how much of the tax money we steal from you and how much we debase your, your currency, how much of that debased stolen currency we will give back to you if you will just shut up and listen and obey. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Biden's speech was written by a guy named... Uh Vinay Reddy, an Indian, first-generation Indian-American, so he's like Indian as in in the country India, lives in New York. He's written for Biden and Harris for a while. Uh, He's done stints writing speeches for the EPA, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Obama-Biden re-election campaign, worked for the the NBA as... So he's an, he's an accomplished propagandist. Yeah, he worked for the NBA as a vice president of strategic communications after serving as Biden's chief speechwriter uh, during his second term as vice president. So this, this guy is dyed-in-the-wool. Uh, he's, from, he's from Ohio, but he's a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, definitely uh, well-connected, and that's the guy writing this but stuff. I want to read a little bit more from the speech. 
Biden says, or this speechwriter says, few periods in our nation's history have been more challenging or difficult than the one we're in now. That's debatable, but we won't go down that rabbit hole. A once in a century virus silently stalks the country. <laughs> a virus doesn't silently stalk, it's just a virus. It- it's not even that bad. I mean, it's a thing, but it's not that Certainly bad. Certainly not see, a once in a century. Uh, uh, a once, uh, we, we saw this in 78, we, or sorry, we saw it in uh, 68 and uh, 79. So 1968, 1979, I believe right? in like the mid-50s, there was another pandemic. Yeah, these were these were Asian flus that came through and killed. 2002, arguably, 2009. Arguably killed just as many people per capita. Just, I mean, the way we handled this, we, we got to remember the way we've handled this as a nation has caused a lot of excess death, too. He goes so. on. He says, it, it's, speaking of the virus, it's taken as many lives in one year as America lost in all of World War II, which is an absurd comparison and also false on its face. Right. Because we, of the way we count deaths. We lose... We lose close to 3 million people every year. It's also important to note that the men who died in World War II were young men. They had 60 years of life ahead of them. The people that are dying from COVID are old, are old men. Half of them are living in nursing homes. And statistically, in the United States and in Europe, if you enter a nursing home, you have a 50% chance, roughly, of dying the first year. It's lower in Europe. It's higher in America. So you, you only enter a long, long-term long care facility because you're expecting to die. They're really not long-term care facilities. They're short, yeah, they're, they're just longer term than and that's the, nothing ho- to do with the COVID. hospital. That's just the yeah. facts about these places. Yeah, I guess I'm going to have to find the studies and link but to the, that. But the, if you look at the number of years lost, you know, life years lost, comparing World War II deaths to COVID deaths is obscene because young men went and died in World War II. Old men are dying from COVID. And so the li- the amount of life years lost is not even comparable. Okay, anyway, he continues on. Millions of jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of businesses closed. A cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. A cry for survival comes from the planet itself. A cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear. And now, a rise in political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism that we must confront and will defeat. To overcome these challenges, to restore the soul and to secure the future of America requires more than words. It requires that most elusive of things in democracy. Unity. Unity. He repeats unity twice. I'm really glad I didn't watch this. I mean, I'm already not very happy about the way things are going. (laughs) This is infuriating. So, in other words, the message is you need to conform and agree and do what we tell you and what we're going to do. And if you don't, you you will be counted among those white supremacists and domestic terrorists. Never mind the absurdity of the planet itself crying out. The, that reminds me of Barack Obama's uh, speech. I think it was his victory speech at, on election night, the first term in 2008, when he said that the oceans will now begin to recede and the planet itself will heal. 
as if he's some sort of trans fig, trans trans Ascendant? trans <laughs> <laughs> as if he's some sort of transcendent uh, is the word some sort of uh, supernatural supernatural being that can pr- make those pronouncements in other words there's a there's a primitive archaic word for a supernatural being that can transcend humanity in the rubes and the in the des- undesirables in middle america use the word god for that oh <clears throat> so that's so, what barack obama but styled himself as <laughs> absolutely well this is you know this does this is high priesthood style rhetoric they they style themselves as a high priesthood without telling you that it's a priesthood what? and they they literally if if they could convince america that the sun would not rise tomorrow if we didn't pay them allegiance and all of our money and bow down to them i think they would try it that's it, that's what we're at at this they point basically, they're manipulating they, like it's worse than a lie they basically do that though to say to <clears throat> to say a cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. First of all, that implies that everybody before Joe Biden has actively deferred that, whatever that means. Never mind the fact that he's been in power for 50 years. He was vice president of the United States for eight years very recently, which admits that he himself has actively deferred this, if you're using his own rules. But this idea that only now that he's in power, only now that he's there, that will fundament the fundamentals of human rights be realized is is arrogant. And you know what else? This is not just a Democrat thing. Our very own Spencer Cox, who somehow I end up clowning on every week, used similar rhetoric in his inauguration speech. He said in his inauguration speech that our children and our children's children will remember this moment. This is our rendezvous with destiny. <laughs> well, my children, you can say whatever my you children want. are alive today. This event happened two weeks ago, and they don't know anything about it, Spencer. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but no one really just no one cares about you or your rhetoric. Thankfully. They're, yeah. There's a lack of relevance there that they will uh, make up for through brute force if necessary. So what we're getting at, the bigger picture here, is that politicians, people in power, and the media apparatus that sits at their feet, polishes their shoes, and licks their boots, and uses language and rhetoric to mind control us into doing the same, the message from them is always the same regardless of who's in power. That message is, do what you're told, and you will be rewarded. The beatings will continue until morale improves. How many lights do you see? If you tell me how many lights you see, and it's the right answer, we can get along. Not only that, you'll be happy. You'll prosper. You'll own nothing, and you'll be happy. Right. But if you don't tell me the number of lights that I want to hear then the beatings will continue until morale improves. That's one of my favorite lines out of 1984. The beatings will continue until morale improves. Did that come from 1984? I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure. Okay. And the idea is that it's the same idea of of the abusive husband saying, I wouldn't have to hit her if she would just listen to me. And that's basically how the government has treated us throughout this ordeal with COVID. 
Gary Herbert, the former governor of Utah, who retired at at, at uh, the end of this year, I'm sure he wishes his retirement came a year earlier. He would get up in these COVID response, COVID pressers, and say things like, "This virus is spreading around the state because of our bad behavior. We need to behave better." The LDS Church has said that those who don't uh, adhere to the government mandates and recommendations are not good Christians and are, are acting in an unchristlike manner. Now, the federal government, you know, Fauci has said many things. It's been permissible and, 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 and acceptable to call people who don't wear masks or who don't social distance murderers and grandma killers. And these are things we've talked about throughout the course of our podcast. We are being psychologically and even physically, in some cases, beaten down until we obey, until we submit. The beatings will continue until morale improves. In other words, we will continue to beat you until you are happy about it. So what you're saying is we're the battered spouse. Right. But why are we being hit? Why are we being knocked down? Because they want control. Control, power, influence. We... We've both talked about being LDS in the past, in past episodes. I suspect we have LDS and non-LDS listeners. Listeners, you're either with us or against us. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how we feel, but but a, a key. But uh, the church right. does. <laughs> a key fundamental uh, in LDS theology is this idea of of the one true uh, church. Un- well, no. oh, okay. What are you getting at? Sorry. <laughs> uh, the, this idea of unrighteous dominion. And when a man engages in unrighteous dominion, there's a penalty. And that penalty is the, is the loss of his priesthood and his power. Priesthood in that context isn't necessarily meaning his station, you know, his called office in the church, but his power and his connection and his ability to commune with God and to lead righteously. Joseph Smith in the Doctrine and Covenants wrote, it is the sad disposition of almost all men that when they gain a little power and authority to... As they suppose. As they suppose, they abuse that power and authority and exercise unrighteous dominion. That's Doctrine and Covenants section 121. If you'd like to read it, it's quite illuminating. The Book of Mormon talks about this kind of thing as well, and preemptive war. Captain, was it Captain Moroni spoke very plainly about the immorality of preemptive war. Alma chapters 46, 47, 48-ish. There is no separation of church and state. There is no separation of uh, spirituality and, and commerce and education and uh, political life in your life, in our lives. That is, a, that is a myth that has been foisted upon us, a mental deficiency that's been foisted upon us by the public school system and the media that somehow we should compartmentalize our lives into these segments of commercial or business and then religion on one hand and then sports on the other hand and, and that, they, that, that morality doesn't cross over. That's, that's, a, that's a falsehood. And I think it stems out of Jefferson's comments about building a wall between church and state. <clears throat> Clearly, the Founding Fathers uh, w- are rolling over in their graves right now about how Congress and uh, government has become so overblown. I mean, literally, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law, and then goes on to talk about establishments of religion, 
uh, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, et cetera, et cetera. And all they do is make laws abridging those rights. And so um, it's important to recognize you, we are all spiritual beings. We are all uh, involved in an experience that is a total experience. It's not a compartmentalized experience. You're, you're not going to look back on your life when you're done and go, oh, you know, it's a good thing I kept all these areas of my life separate. You're, you're going to recognize how your search for truth and your application of morality mattered in every aspect of your life, and it mattered equally, and that the same basic principles applied. That's what's, that's the reckoning that we have to face at the end. And so I think that's what you're getting at, right? Is that we, we need to try to be moral people and this, the same things that apply religiously. If we, if we purport to believe Christianity, if we purport to believe some sort of a, of a religion that has a moral basis, we need to apply that everywhere. And, and I think that's what you're getting at. And I, I don't mind at all getting into the religious discussion. Um, it's just that I don't see it as religion. I see it as reality. Right, right. And even if you're not religious, it's a matter of being a principled person who... The question is, do these principles apply universally or not? Or, is, is in other true? words, is truth universal or not? Right. Is it, is it true or not what Joseph Smith said, that it is the disposition of almost any man, as soon as he gains a little authority, as he supposes, that he will begin to exercise unrighteous dominion? Is that or is that not true? I say it's unequivocally true, and it's demonstrated in spades throughout our society. We have a long history of a long train of abuses. R- religion has been successfully d- demonized. I use that word deliberately in the American uh, conversation. Uh, and let's let's say this: you have religion, and then you have institutions of religion. Right. But so I, when you're saying religion, you're thinking more philo- philosophical religion. I, I'm talking, yeah, and principles. I, that and also just religious people, believers, are generally dismissed as a non-contributor, backwards, to dogmatic conversations. Yeah. yeah, backwards, dogmatic, superstitious, uneducated. Closed-minded, science deniers. Right. This is this is everything George Stephanopoulos purports not to be, but actually, relative to his religion, he is dogmatic. He is a believer. He is closed-minded. It's his way or the way, or the highway. Everybody is religious. Everybody has something that they put their faith into. Even an atheist is adopting a. Uh, a philosophical position. And so everybody in the world takes on this philosophical doctrine of some sort where they put their faith and their trust in something. It might be themselves. It might be what they call science. It might be government. It might be philosophy. Philosophy. It might be whatever some the case. Some sort of a principle, some, some, sort of a, some sort of a mode of living. And that's because, as Jordan pointed out, we're all spiritual beings. And that spirit, in my opinion, that spirit cries out to us in a way that makes us put our faith in something bigger than ourselves. There's an innate belief in all of us that there is, there's more to this life than just bread and circus and labor. There's more to it. There's some purpose. There's some underlying reason that we're on the earth today and that we're people with intellect and uh, 
feelings and desires and mm-hmm. aspirations and art and creativity and all of these things that make us human and that make life worth living and, and good. Unfortunately, though, that conversation has become more and more narrowed where that the only source of goodness comes from authority. And the only source of creativity and truth and righteousness comes from those in authority and with the proper vestments, whether literal vestments that they wear on their shoulders. Hugh Nibley once opened up a BYU graduation by saying, here we are gathered in the robes of a false priesthood. The black robes of a false priesthood. He said that in a prayer. In a prayer. (laughs) And later on, years later, he said, he said, since then, a lot of people have asked if I said such a thing, but nobody's really asked me why I said such a thing. And he goes on to explain why. And if you're interested in that, look up Hugh Nibley's essay called Leaders and Managers. And it's a wonderful, relevant essay that was written a long time ago about the difference between leading or leadership and management. Right. For the for the uninformed, Hugh Nibley is a very prominent Mormon scholar. He he died I think uh right after the turn of the yeah century. early 2000s I think. Yeah, uh he was an incredible mind. The people that knew him whether they were LDS or not would uh say things like, you know, it's unconscionable that a man could know so much, you know, and whether whether they agreed with him or not, Hugh Nibley was almost universally regarded as uh one of the great religious minds of the last century and and really not just religious but a scholar scholarly minds yeah he uh, th- there are there are plenty of mormon detractors that will say that most egyptologists don't think you nibley really knew anything and that's actually not true when you really look at it and who who nibley you who Hugh nibley knew and what he was involved in he he um commanded a great deal of respect it's unfortunate that the discussion has devolved into essentially name calling on the Mormon versus anti-Mormon front, and 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 it's essentially devolved into name calling on the political front too, and that's where our, our why our society is in such trouble, is because that that's all we have left because we we don't think. Famously, Hitler stated, "What luck for the rulers that the people don't think," and it's an unfortunate truism. It is it is lucky for them if the people were to think they might then reassess their philosophical roots. And, and let me remind you that the word philosophy is an important word. It literally in Greek means love of philos, love of, and Sophia, wisdom. And Sophia, being a woman's name, is not an accident. Uh, in the ancient world, wisdom, or Sophia, was the divine feminine. And knowledge, or truth, was usually attributed to the divine masculine. And so we, we have a world out of balance right now where people don't know the, the divine masculine, nor do they know the divine feminine. We've, we've forgotten the divine feminine for a long time, and that's a taboo su- subject. But philosophia, f- philosophy is essentially the search for that divine wisdom that, and the love of it. And so uh, that's one, th- one reason I like to discuss with you, Bobby, because I feel like you're a seeker of wisdom. And truth and um and you love it well and well thanks (laughs) put you on the spot (laughs) but it 
it reminded me of, and maybe just because we've been talking about it, that interview with Rand Paul and George Step Stephanopoulos, Stephanopoulos, Stephanopoulos. Essentially, what Rand Paul was saying was, we need to get to the bottom of something that is very important, and that's the integrity of elections in the United States. And George, on the flip side, is saying, no, we don't. No, we don't. What we need is conformity and unity. Joe Biden goes on in his speech to continue to talk about unity. And whenever a politician talks about unity, I get nervous because that usually involves authoritarianism. Uh, it involves some new laws that nobody read, a stack of papers three feet high that was presented to the Congress in the middle of the night that they passed the next day without anybody reading it. And it usually involves a suppression of individual rights. Individual rights and also discussion. Democracy, if we want to talk about democracy, democracy is the people arguing. It's the people discussing. Hugh Nibley, we've just talked about, he has a great essay called Beyond Politics. And he makes the argument that God is God God has his own kingdom. And we fall short of that here on earth. And so a, a weak substitute is politics and a political systems and government systems and weak governments populated by weak men. And we participate in order to try to create a better environment for all of us. And ideally, and we've talked about this before, ideally to defend the individual God-given rights that we each have. But he, he talks about how politics is discussion. It's conversation. It's the agora, which we've talked about before, the exchange of ideas. I think it comes from the word polis, which literally means in Latin and Greek, city. Right, the people of the city. Yeah. And the civil exchange, the civil, the civil idea, the civil or civil exchange of ideas. Politique, pertaining to public affairs, from the Greek politikos of citizens pertaining to the state, its administration, police, city. From, so I was correct there. So it, it absolutely relates to the town center, the agora, the public square. And the idea, the reason he calls the essay Beyond Politics is because when you go beyond politics, or going beyond politics always involves the same thing, war, violence. We've talked about this before in our episode about the Capitol on, on January 6th. Right, if it can't be solved in the public square, it gets solved on the battlefield. What happens when a person no longer feels like their voice is being heard? They resort to more extreme measures. What we have is an institution, and I'm speaking of the primarily the federal government. I'm going to talk, but really government in general, from federal to state to city to county to your local, your local, local right. yokel mayor. <laughs> right, because there's been a careful indoctrination of the public mind in the last century, and, and maybe we need to do a, an episode on the history of the public school system and the people that have been most influential in that system, but that's why everybody thinks the same because they've been thoroughly indoctrinated with the same ideals. And again, that's why we're doing this podcast is try to break out of that mind prison into some better philosophy or into actual philosophy, the love of wisdom. And so uh, in this essay, continue, I'm sidetracking you. Basically, we, a government from the top to the bottom is predicated on this idea that there are betters, that we 
elect the best and the brightest, and we send them to Washington to take care of us or to Salt Lake City to take care of us. I saw a ridiculous tweet that said, repeat after me, I am not smarter than Joe Biden. I am not smarter than Kamala Harris. <laughs> I am not smarter than Anthony Fauci. <laughs> oh my and, gosh. And this person was being sincere. Yeah. And I just thought. I want to go on record and say I disagree with that statement, but go ahead. Well, I, and I thought, even if it's true, even if I'm not smarter than those people, so what? Am I, does that qualify? Does that mean that I must obey and do whatever they tell me to do just because they may or may not be smarter? Now, I would, I would make the argument that I might be smarter than all of those people, and I'm not a very smart person. Well, it doesn't matter. That's playground language. It's juvenile right, exactly. language. What, is, what do you mean by how do you, smart? How do you even measure that? Right? What, what, why, how, is, how is uh, Dr. Fauci any smarter than Dr. Erickson from Bakersfield, California? He hasn't been practicing, and he hasn't been doing the testing. So arguably, Erickson has far greater information to share right. than Fauci. Fauci's an administrator. And besides that, he has ties to all these pharmaceutical companies that have been trying to make money on the pandemic. So uh, who, who, do, who's smarter? That, that's a loaded... It's, 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 a, it's a bunch it's, of crap to Like you said, it's question. playground language. It's saying my dad can beat up your dad. Yeah, and that's what we've devolved to, and that's what we're talking about today. Right. We've devolved... We've literally... The public mind has devolved this far that not, not just Donald Trump, who was fair game because of his boisterousness, but now Rand Paul has to get skewered by George Stephanopoulos, and George's only real argument is liar, liar, pants on fire. Right. And you have politicians like like Spencer Cox here in the state of Utah, who so far has made, has, has built his platform on this idea that we all need to just get along and be happy and, and, and agree with one another. Even when we disagree with each other, we need to agree that it's okay to disagree. And it's a bunch of milquetoast rhetoric that doesn't really mean anything. What it means is we have the power already. You need to just go along with it. Well, exactly. And so he's winning points in the press. The, the, the local Utah press is so incurious. We are not all in this together. Okay. It's the privileged class living off the backs of everybody else. That has been so obvious during this lockdown climate. But that's always the case. The government always lives off the backs of the working people. And to bring it back to Nibley and his essay, Beyond Politics, he asked the question, and I'm just going to read it. It's, I'm going to read a little excerpt. He says, In every age, we find the worldly powers hypnotized by the image of the world as a maiden, a great battleground, on which the forces of good and evil are locked in mortal combat. True, there is a contest, but it is within the individual, not between ignorant armies. That solution is all too easy. Recall the statement of Joseph Smith that every candid man must draw the conclusion in his own mind whether this, meaning any political system, is the order of heaven or not. Banners, trumpets, and dungeons were early devised to help men wake up their minds. But God does not fight Satan. A word from him and Satan is silenced and banished. There is no contest there. In fact, we are expressly told that all the power which Satan enjoys here on earth is granted him by God. We will allow Satan, our common enemy, to try man and tempt him. 
It is man's strength that is being tested, not God's. Nay, even in putting us to the test, the devil, to quote Joseph Smith, has no power over us only as we permit him. Since then, God would not exert any compulsory means, and the devil could not. It is up to us to decide how much power Satan shall have on the earth, but only in respect to ourselves. The fight is all within us. That is the whole battle. But how much easier to shift the battle to another arena and externalize the cause of all of our misfortune. What he's getting at is that it's easy for us to say the government, the government, the government, which we do, and rightfully so. But ultimately, this is a conflict in our own, within ourselves. Joseph Campbell talked about that. He says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, he said, he said any honest man who looks at himself will find great evil in his own heart and see monsters there. We're all capable of it, but we're also all capable of overcoming that. That is the conflict. It's not, as Joe Biden likes to talk about, that we cede our responsibility to them so they can lord over us in righteousness. You know, I love Nibley and uh, really love Nibley, and uh, we should talk about Hugh Nibley a lot more in the future. And things that he has brought up there. Uh, he, the question is what scholars would call the question of theodicy. Who's to blame for evil in the world? And of course, the forces of evil want us focused on the wrong things. And there is an, there is an internal and an external struggle going on. There's a microcosm and a macrocosmic issue Absolutely. at stake here. And it starts with the microcosm with the with the individual. <clears throat> so I'm not I'm not, not really taking issue with what Hugh has said here. I think we should I think we should discuss it more. But I think the point for this particular podcast, for this episode, is that just like we started off talking about, the government does not have any moral authority that an individual does not have. We are. We transfer. We don't. We don't actually transfer, but we vest. We project. We project uh, ability, uh, authority into the government, to as a people, to handle certain things that are supposed to protect our individual rights, and that's where the narrative has been changed in the last century. That somehow the government has the greater good in mind and can do things that individuals can't. The thought, the thought experiment that you need to make is, and I think we've brought this up before in our podcast, is this idea that if it's not moral for you to go to your friend's house and steal his stuff, then what makes it moral for you to go find another friend and go over to his house and, and take, take his stuff? Say, we voted to take your stuff. Or what makes it moral to get everybody in the neighborhood and go to that person's house and take their money and their things? There is nothing that makes it moral for you to go steal his stuff. doesn't matter how many people vote to take his stuff. And that's essentially what government is. It's a, I have a friend who calls it an advanced auction on, or elections. He calls elections advanced auctions on stolen property. And uh, we got to get this guy on. He's, a, he's got some great ideas on volunteerism and really a smart fellow and would love I think you'd enjoy chatting with him but uh government is essentially deciding what to do with stolen property and it's just, it's what what they call legal plunder and then you get into the argument of well 
we have to steal. We have to do that. You, they, they won't say steal. They call them taxes. We say, well, we have to have taxes because how would we pay for things like the police or the roads? And then my response to that is, well, it really doesn't matter. The point that you need to remember is that you can't think of and are unwilling to spend the time to think of a better way than stealing to do that. To resort to violence and theft and to call that the foundation of a civilized society, who somebody back in the progressive era, I think, said that taxation was the foundation of a civilized society. That's a giant lie. Right. That's a giant lie to 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 equate civilized behavior with violence and theft is absurd. Right. John Marshall, one of the first Supreme Court chief justices in 1819 in the decision McCullough versus Maryland stated the power to tax involves the power to destroy. So he framed it correctly 200 years ago. It's very clear that government at all levels has exceeded its moral authority, its moral rationale, which is that as people, we would band together to get something done with the least amount of uh, damage to, to individual rights and to the minorities. And the thing that was supposed to be accomplished by the government back in the day was the protection of the rights of the people in that community, in that uh, state or nation or whatever you want to call it. That is the basis upon which this nation was founded, was that idea that government exists to protect those unalienable rights. And so here we are witnessing the destruction of the public mind, the, the, the media going all in, attempting to shout down truth-tellers like Rand Paul, attempting to get them to say there are five lights when there are only four lights, or to get them to say that four plus, or two plus two equals five instead of four, to demonstrate their allegiance to this new regime. That, that is where we are at in 2021. Spencer Cox, in his State of the State address, said, in short, if we want smaller government, we need bigger people. Now, on its surface, I'm not sure exactly what, that, what mean? that means. Does he mean we all need to gain weight? <laughs> does he mean we, we, we need to be taller? What I think he means is we need better people. I, I read that statement, and that's the statement from his state of the state that kind of getting the headlines, a lot of the press is. Is his implication that we need people who are smarter enough to wear masks on their own? I mean... Right, I, and we could, we could drill down in these implications. People who follow what the Twitter mob says? I, at first I read it, and I, I kind of thought I read it as a threat. If you want smaller government, so he's admitting we don't have a small government here in the yeah. state of Utah, which we don't. You have to be better. You have to listen to me. We, he also implies later in the speech that if people were better and took better care of one another, the government wouldn't have to step in and do it for them. He said the audacity of this statement, the, the lack of self-awareness is off the charts. And Spencer Cox is one of the most unaware people I've ever encountered in, in the public square. I've never met him. I, I, I got to say that, but I'm just going by what he says publicly. 
Recall that just a few months ago, Governor Herbert, his boss, Spencer Cox was the lieutenant governor, issued a, an executive order in the state of Utah, to Utah that essentially made it illegal for friends and family to gather. Okay? In his State of the State speech, Spencer Cox said, instead of posting one more thing to, to Facebook, why not go next door and check on your neighbor? I'm, pra- I'm paraphrasing that. Now, the absurdity of it is, first of all, he posts on social media every five minutes, retweeting himself and self-aggrandizing and sending people to his links of his speeches and things. But it's right on the heels of him making sure (laughs) that that we are all afraid of one another and that it and making it illegal to visit one another in a home and, and to go and check on your neighbor on its face, you know, if you take it just in a vacuum, sure, that's a good thing to, to do. Put down the phones, put down social media, and go visit with people face-to-face. Great. But for the person who has spent a year tell, making sure you. that we are psychologically terrorized and that we are afraid to visit our own grandmothers and our own mothers and fathers, and we're afraid of our neighbors, and we look at each other with suspicion at the one guy in church or at the grocery store store who isn't wearing a mask, and that it's now okay to believe that that person is a is a selfish, disease-spreading murderer, for him to... Asymptomatic selfish, disease-spreading murderer. For him to say something like that, it 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 Boggles spills it spills over the boundaries of absurdity. Yeah, you said something really really important there, and that is that these these things these statements taken in a vacuum are good statements, right? Like unity in a vacuum is a good statement, but that is the problem. These these statements cannot be taken in a vacuum. Right. Listen to what I'm saying versus look at what I'm doing. I cannot hear what you're saying because your actions are speaking so loudly. That's where we're at right now in, in, in today's society. The government has gone so far overboard in all areas of our lives that now the issue is just who can be the, the biggest cheerleader of government, who can, who can spout the party line the fastest and the most charismatically. That's where media and government is at. And people who are antagonistic to whatever the flavor of the day is, whatever the rhetoric of the day is, are going to get shouted down like Rand Paul. Wh- whatever you think of Rand Paul, he made good points, and he he's clearly fighting a, a battle well behind enemy lines. You know, he the, the fact that he has to be so diplomatic about clear election fraud and not, not saying the election was stolen, you know, that just just to be able to continue to be heard in the public square is a sad statement on where we're at because it is that bad we're we're i mean <laughs> the, 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 not a single major news outlet aired even a single evidence and there is copious enormous amounts of evidence sworn affidavits surveillance video about this election about uh, uh, demonstrating fraud in this election and the fact that the the I mean it might be the first time it was ever said on national television that the the states the four states 
clearly broke their own election laws. I mean, Rand Paul, he, Stephanopoulos didn't even want to hear that. He was shouting at him while he's trying to explain that they, they broke their own election laws. That's how bad it is right now. And so, uh, as Nibley indicates, as uh, Bobby, you were talking about, the battle, and, and even Spencer Cox's statement in a vacuum, we need bigger pe- people. Yeah, that's true. But, but bigger people does not mean following along with what... Uh, what Spencer Cox or the media wants you to believe. The big people need to come out in favor of truth and wisdom. They need to come out and say, listen, this is not right because, and articulate the argument instead of spouting the liar, liar, pants on fire garbage and the ad hominem attacks. If you come out for truth, you will be villainized. You will, or vilified, excuse me. You'll be branded a terrorist. You'll be branded a reprobate by by these people and they will call you a liar while you are spouting the truth. Let me let me read just really quickly and then you wrap us up, send us off, Bobby. But I want to read you from John chapter 16, the King James version. Right after Jesus tells his disciples the world will hate them because it hates him. The world hates them, the disciples, because it hates Jesus, who is the spirit of truth. He says, "These things I've spoken unto you that you should not be offended." They shall put you out of the synagogues. Now remember, this sounds religious, but at the time in Judea, it was a theocracy. This, the town center, the, po- the politique, the police, the, uh, the body politic was all about religious act, uh, a religious theocracy run by the Sanhedrin. And that's something we could get into in a, in a future episode is the fact that his, the history surrounding the... Uh, uh, Palestine at the time of Jesus is wildly um, misrepresented in movies like Ben Hur, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They, they they portray Judea as having been under the thumb of the the Romans when forty, fifty, sixty years earlier the the Palestinians had applied for uh, territorial status in the Roman Empire, and it was perhaps the time when they were the most comfortable and the most uh, free and uh, had the most autonomy and protection because of the Roman influence. At the time of Christ, there was only a cohort, less than a cohort, that's less than 600 soldiers living in Palestine, and so Jesus was crucified by the temple guard, not by the Roman soldiers. If If there were any Roman soldiers on the mount, it was because Pilate was there to try and keep order. So, this this is clear from an examination of the Greek New Testament, especially the Gospel of John. But my point being that um, w- whenever you bring up Jesus, whenever you bring up the New Testament, people think you're looking at a religious thing. And it's not a religious thing, as we've discussed. This is a moral thing. It applies to all the aspects of our lives. And Jesus, in John chapter 15, has just told the disciples that the world hates them because it hates him, and it hates truth. And he says, these things I have spoken to you, John chapter 16, verse 1, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. That's the gathering place. It's not just a religious thing. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. I could go on and on and on here, but they will kill you and say they are doing God's service. And that is right where we are at right now. 
People are going to say they're righteous, that they are moral, while they are literally turning morality upside down, and they won't want to talk about things. They, they, the reason they can't talk about them is because it becomes clear. When, when you bring up a thought experiment, like the idea that it's not appropriate for Bobby to come steal from me or to get his closest 40 friends to vote on it and come steal from me, that has an effect. Truth has an effect. And so those of you that are listening, we hope this is helping and that you um, are able to spread truth and rationality and philosophia, love of wisdom, amongst those with whom you have influence. But recognize they, that whosoever killeth you will think he doth God's service. Nibley has another essay called Zeal Without Knowledge. And in that, he talks about this idea that he quotes Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith said, I'm paraphrasing, Joseph Smith said that the people, meaning the people, the the Latter-day Saints of his day, got to a point where they were relying too much on him, on the prophet, and that they were letting their own responsibilities to seek for truth, to seek for wisdom, fall by the wayside, and were content to simply listen to the prophet. He said they were neglecting the duty that devolved upon themselves. Right. We've done this in our culture. We've ceded our responsibility to seek for truth and wisdom to our political, and in some cases, our religious betters, those who we think know better than us. And remember, I'm lumping them all together. Have Right. Have access to better information than us. When Spencer Cox says we need bigger people, if we just accept that, then what we're doing is we're accepting the idea that he gets to define who right. bigger people right, right. are. Right, because all the credible people that I think we should be listening to have been censored. When he what does says, that say? When he says that in his inauguration speech that the world is full of disinformation, conspiracy theories, and lies, what, we're, what he's saying is, I get to decide what is disinformation, conspiracy theory, and lies. And so what you might think are those things is invalid because I get to decide because I am the person in power. Right. This is why they had to squash the Great Barrington Declaration, because there's thousands of medical professionals, doctors, public health officials who have signed on to this saying that we the government shouldn't be responding the way it is. But you have to squash it because we can't have that many credible people. And of course, in one place, there are disinf- there there is dif- disinformation, conspiracy theories and lies out there. The point, though, is not to eliminate those things. The point is to figure out what they are, and to have conversations, to meet together, and to discuss, and to argue. And sometimes those arguments are heated. That's what you do to avoid pulling out a, a, a sword and stabbing the guy across from you through the chest, or in modern terms, going to war with another nation. You have conversations, and you debate, and you let people decide what what they agree with right. and what they don't agree with. For Joe Biden to say that because I got elected, democracy has prevailed is absurd because he 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 won with a narrow margin. It's always, you know, 50-50. There's a lot of people. My point is there are a lot of people who 
who don't agree with him. That's okay. There's a lot of people who didn't agree with Trump, and that's the nature of a democratic republic where we argue and we discuss and we let the truth rise to the surface. Unfortunately, we've conflated truth with government policy, and that's stupid because government policy is not based in truth. It's based in advantage. And that's Force. what the, the last thought I have today is Jordan read from the New Testament. I want to bring up the Book of Mormon. And the, the Book of Mormon talks extensively about the idea, what, uh, what it calls secret combinations. And in the cases, and today we would call them conspiracy theories or a cabal. No, we, we would call them conspiracies. Conspiracies and, and a cabal. or In the Book of Mormon, a criminal syndicate. there's a criminal syndicate called the Gadianton Robbers. And they spend their entire documented existence oh, infiltrating the mechanisms of control. So they take over governments. They have, they have people uh, infiltrate the seats of judgment. They have people uh, in the highest places of power. And the question is, why? What was their purpose? What did they seek to gain? Power, money, and control. And everything they did was to get gain. And so we have to ask ourselves. And by gain, we mean advantage, not necessarily advantage, just money. Not just money, but advantage so that they, they could then turn around and exercise unrighteous dominion. And they could do whatever they wanted without repercussion. In Helaman, it talks about, Helaman is a book in the Book of Mormon, similar to like, say, John in the New Testament. In Helaman, it, I think chapter 12, it talks about how they were able to murder and steal and plunder without punishment because they controlled the people who would normally hold that kind of behavior accountable, and they looked the other way. We have to ask ourselves, again, to paraphrase Joseph Smith, well, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, does that sort of thing exist today in our own governments? I think the answer is clearly and plainly, <laughs> unequivocally, obviously, yes. <laughs> so we have to ask ourselves, is this system of government godly? Is it righteous? Is it based on truth? Is it based on indi- on protecting the individual from these predator syndicates? Obviously, it's not. So then, what what does that mean? What is the next step for people like us who see that there is something incredibly wrong and immoral? And what do we do about it? Well, uh, quoting from the Book of Mormon, uh, which I have read. <laughs> The answer is found in Ether chapter 8, which is a book that comes after Helaman. And it essentially says that the Lord commands you when you see these things come among you, that you repent. And repent, of course, and we could do episodes on this. I would enjoy talking about the concept of repentance. It's been mischaracterized through, you know, the last 2,000 years of Catholic, Protestant, Orthodoxy, but... It comes from the Latin word repoinatentia, which means to the process of repunishing yourself. But that was a bad translation uh, that Jerome made of the Greek metanoia, meaning to expand or change your mind, to 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 uh, enlighten the mind. And so the point is, when you see these things come among you, change your mind, wake up because of the secret combination which has gotten above you, and repent. 
Yeah, I think that's the, it. That's for, the that's the that's the admonition in ether. The phrase I think in ether is awake to a sense of your awful situation and repent. We are in an awful situation. Nibley in Beyond Politics, the essay we've referenced a few times, says the same thing. He says the answer to the the way to prevent going beyond politics, which he defines as war, is to repent. Repent on an individual level and then preach repentance. So that doesn't mean necessarily being the guy that's on the street corner saying, repent, repent, for the end is nigh, even though the end is nigh. That is an accurate statement. But <laughs> what he means is, is help people change their minds to the truth and be and awake to this sense of your awful situation and then tell people about the awful situation. It's my hope that the masses, the regular people like me and Jordan, understand that something is wrong. That's the beginning. That's the awakening. You have to recognize that something is wrong before you can f- fix the falsehoods in your mind and change the mind before you can repent. This, you shouldn't feel bad about being tricked. Little kids don't feel bad when, you, when they recognize they've been tricked. They just add that to their mental map and, their, and their, their capacity grows. Adults seem to take massive offense and sometimes don't want to be told. You know, they'd, they'd la- rather live in ignorance than admit that they were wrong about something as, as significant as American history or, or, or American government. If you look at uh, that idea in context of this last 12 months of coronavirus nonsense. You, yeah. What we have is, is basically, I think a lot of people are saying to themselves, all of this carnage has to have been worth something, right? The government and the health officials and all these people forcing this carnage upon us ha- couldn't have been completely wrong. It can't have been completely nefarious, right? There has to have been some benefit, so therefore I will continue to go along with it because there's no way that these good people in government that we've elected would do this to us on purpose. There's no way that that would be the case. Well, the, the, the truth is they did do it on purpose, and they continue to do it on purpose. Are there useful idiots who are being tricked in government and in public health? Yes, absolutely. Are there those who are nefarious and are calculating and are getting gain from all of this? Yes. And you, you last week brought up the, the ultimate question. The question is, if the media were not talking about this, would you even know there was a pandemic? That's, that's the best question to ask. It's, it's, the, it's the disease that you must be tested to know that you have it. And then if, if the media weren't terrorizing everybody's minds about this, would the public even know there was a problem? It, just like any other year, you'd have a few people that in, in your circle of friends, there'd be a couple of people you'd hear about in your extended circles that passed away from a strange illness. And then there'd be a few old people that passed away, just like any other year. You know, that, that happens every year. I'd like to hearken your mind back to prior to 2020 when things like this happened and people didn't freak out. But that is the problem. We need to awaken to a sense of this awful situation because of the secret com- combination that has gotten above us, the criminal syndicate that has unmasked itself. And we need to then reinform ourselves about the actual reality. And that's what I, I hope Bobby and I, I hope that our discussions are helping us recenter on rational, good, helpful 
righteous ways to think about your society where, you, you know, if it's not right for me to do it to Bobby, it's not right for me to do it to people, brown people on the other side of the world or, you know, people that I don't know. It's not know. right to do, it's period. Not, it's not right to do it. Our humanity and therefore our divinity, this is something we repeat often, is being taken away from us. It's being stolen from us by the secret criminal syndicate. They're less and less secret all the time. Yeah, the obvious Be- criminal because, syndicate. And even the, the Gadiantans in the Book of Mormon were not all that secret because they knew that they could act with impunity. They knew that there was no accountability for their actions. Yeah, at one point they were even, uh, there was a negotiation going on and they they come out to the leader of the free people and they say, join us, join in our spoils. You'll, you'll enjoy this. You'll like this. They literally try to make the argument that it's good. It's, it's good. This is a good way to live. And that brings us full circle back to the inauguration in our beginning of our discussion. There were people there that in a just world would be considered war criminals. And instead they were celebrated. And they said, join us. Let's be unified exactly. in this combination. Don't let the secret combination get any more above you. Awake to the sense of your awful situation and repent and change your mind and expand your mind and speak the truth with boldness. You will be criticized for it. You might, you can speak this truth without uttering a word. Take off your mask, stop social distancing, go visit your parents and your grandparents shake people's hands. It's what I said last week. It's a small thing, but it will start and it will cascade. And we do have the power to overcome the secret combination, as Nibley talked about. We, we have that power. We, aren't, we, we are on the side of goodness, we believe. Of course, everybody believes that. <laughs> we, but God is not in a battle with Satan. God can dismiss Satan with a single word. You can too, because you are the offspring of God. Satan is manifesting himself on this earth through governments, through armies and navies, through control, through criminal syndicates, and through authoritarianism and unrighteous dominion. Amen, brother. (laughs) Like, comment, subscribe. (laughs) Yep. See you next week, I hope. Share, Share this with your friends if you're enjoying it. We appreciate having an audience. Thanks, everybody. And uh, signing off, this is Bobby Flood. Jordan Bruno. We'll see you next time.